0: This is an AMI podcast.
1: This is an AMI podcast. This is AMI-audio Live, bringing community events closer to you.
2: Hello and welcome to AMI-audio's live coverage of an important event, one voice more choices don't leave us behind this is a conference that has been organized by the alliance for equality of blind canadians or aebc as most of us know them the event marks the united nations international day of persons with disabilities my name is joita gupta i'm speaking to you from the comfort of my home in downtown toronto I will be your host or anchor for our coverage today, and I'm very excited that you could all join us for such a significant moment, not just for AMI-audio, but for people with disabilities. You can also catch me if you uh, would like to hear more from me, of course. You can always catch me on The Pulse, which airs on AMI-audio on the weekends at 10 a.m. Eastern. I think I speak for all of us when I say that this has been an unusual and challenging year for the disability community. The global pandemic has meant that our very way of life has gone has been turned upside down. We've seen new challenges, but also new opportunities. So over the next three hours, you'll be hearing from a range of experts, advocates and change makers within the disability community about how all of us can get involved and ensure that we are not left behind. So this is an exciting conference that's going to bring some really exciting people together. Some really important conversations are about to happen. So without further ado, let's take you right to the Zoom room where our MC for the day, who is Minette Samaru, AEBC's National Vice President and the president for AEBC's Toronto chapter is RMC. And she is about to get things started. I'll throw things over to you, Minette.
3: Thank you, Juita. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this, the fifth International Day for Persons with Disabilities event, hosted by the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians and Partner Organizations. We thank you for sharing your Saturday afternoon with us. We have a fabulous line of speakers and panelists, but I'm sure there is something for everyone. Most importantly, it is my fervent hope that what we do today would reach our leaders and policymakers. As we cry it in one voice, do not leave us behind. We respectfully start this conference with a land acknowledgement. This will be done by Melanie Marsden Myers, Circle Inside Consultant, and she's a consultant there. Melanie is a consultant for Circle Insights and firmly project manager and accessibility specialist at Springtide Resources. She holds a degree in social work and hopes to one day do her master's studying Aboriginal Elder Teachings. She uses an an intersectional approach as an, indig- as an indig- indigenous person that is blind. She is a parent of three and a grandmother. Over to you, Melanie.
4: Thank you, Manette. My name is Melanie Marsden Myers. My indigenous name is She Carries the Light Woman. I am registered with Alderville First Nations. I am Ojibwe and Mohawk, and I am Bear Clan. We acknowledge that members attending this conference are situated in various communities across Ontario and in other provinces. As we watch trees change and winter and animals readying for colder weather, we are are aware of nature and the importance of caring for it. We further acknowledge that the First Peoples of Canada have been the stewards of this land for at least 12,000 years. And we honor the contributions that Métis, Inuit, and other Indigenous peoples have made, both in shaping and strengthening this province and the country as a whole. We who sit at this table are aware of our role to peaceably share and care for the resources around Ontario's Great Lakes as set out in the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy, the Ojibwe and allied nations. For those who are settlers, they are grateful for the opportunity to live, play and work here. Mm -hmm. We thank all the generations of peoples who have taken care of this land upon which we meet. This recognition of the contributions and historical importance of Indigenous peoples must also be clearly and overtly connected to our collective commitment to make the promise and the challenge of truth and reconciliation real in our communities. We commit to bringing justice, for murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, transgender, trans-identifying, and two-spirited peoples. Today, on behalf of Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, it has been an honour to uh, offer the land acknowledgement as an Indigenous disabled woman in the spirit of creating an inclusive, safe space where people present can be part of honoring the presentations, engaging in conversations, and moving the Indigenous and disabilities conversation forward in a respectful, safe, and good way. I thank other Indigenous people who have expressed this land acknowledgement and given me permission uh, to build on it and make it my own and share it with you today. Miigwetch.
3: Thank you, Melanie. We would like to share a little about our host from AMI-audio, Joeita Gupta. Jyothi Gupta is the host of the Pulse Army Audio she has nurtured a lifelong dream to work in radio. She's blind and she moved in Toronto in 2004 and got her start in radio at CKLN 88.1 FM in Toronto. A former co-host of AMI Adios, live on Studio 5, Joita also works full-time at a nonprofit in Toronto, specializing in housing and tenant rights. Joita also serves on the Board for Violence for Blind Adults. I would like to take this time to acknowledge our sponsors for this event. We have Salesforce of the United States, Baker and McKenzie LLP, who has been a partner in planning this event, and also a partner for ABC since 2019. Canadian Council of the Blind, who has also been a uh, partner in this for this event. I would like to say special thanks to Ian White for all the time he's put into. Getting this event organized and Trailblazer Startup Cycling Club. Thank you to our sponsors. And now I would, I would like to introduce opening Dr. Michael J. Prince, who would be giving the opening remarks. Dr. Michael J. Prince. Lansdowne Professor of Social Policy at the University of Victoria. Michael teaches in the School of Public Health and Social Policy. Dr. Prince has been an an advisor to various federal, provincial, territorial, and municipal government agencies. All royal Commissions and to several parliamentary committees federally and provincially. An active volunteer. Dr. Prince has been a board member of a committee of a community health clinic, a legal aid society, a hospital society and Hospital Foundation, the BC Association for Community Living, and the Social Policy Committee of the Council of Canadians
5: with Disabilities.
3: Welcome, Dr. Michael J. Prince, and it's over to you.
6: Thank you. Thank you, Manette, for those kind words of introduction. And good morning from Victoria on the west coast of Canada, or good afternoon for many of you in Ontario or other parts of Canada. Uh, It's a delight to speak to you all today. And I'd also like to thank Christine uh, for her organization and arrangements, and Marcia Yale for reaching out again, uh, and giving me the opportunity to be part of another AEBC gathering. Uh, I had the privilege of being part of celebrating the 26th annual conference back in April 2018 in Burnaby, BC. and uh, maybe next year there'll be an opportunity to get together in person again. That's only hope, but I'm happy to be here today in the Zoom room with all of you. I also want to acknowledge with respect that I am speaking today from the traditional territories of the Lekwungan-speaking peoples where I live. Uh, these are today the Songhees and the Esquimalt First Nations on Vancouver Island and the Wasonic peoples whose historical relationships with the land continue to this day. We are marking the International Day persons with disabilities. As you know, it's a specific time each year, recognized by the United Nations, for people around the world to come together to support people with disabilities, to raise awareness, and to talk about tackling barriers, advancing rights, and expanding the scope of equal opportunities for all in our societies. For this year's International Day, the theme is building back better toward a disability inclusive, accessible, and sustainable post-COVID-19 world. That's a big, big set of ideas, and uh, I'm delighted that that's the theme. It's so appropriate. Whether we had COVID or not, we always have this agenda, I think, of aspirations of more inclusion and accessibility. Persons living with a disability represent over 22% of the Canadian population. As you well know, many people with disabilities live in poverty, experience discrimination, and confront barriers in accessing essential health care, community services, appropriate housing, employment, and communications on a daily basis. I wish to speak to you today about some of my work in relation to the COVID-19 Disability Advisory Group that the Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Disability Inclusion, the Honorable Carla Qualtrough, established back in April at the very beginning of the pandemic here in Canada, to which I am one of 11 people appointed by the minister. Minister Qualtro reached out and appointed members recognized for leadership and expertise within the broader disability community. The people I work with, the other members, have significant experience working in various sectors, the non-for-profits, private business, provincial governments, the odd academic like me, as well as community organizations and activists, people with lived experiences of disability, and those who are leaders of disability organizations across the country, reflecting different disability types, gender, racial, linguistic, and regional diversity. Even before... The pandemic, we knew, and you know that federal, provincial and territorial disability programs were inadequate in meeting the diverse and essential needs of individuals and families living with disabilities in Canada. The pandemic further intensifies these hard realities. Individuals and families living with disabilities are enduring increased costs during the pandemic and decreased opportunities to access essential goods and services. This results in further marginalization and despair. The Disability Advisory Group was mandated to provide advice to the Minister on the real-time lived experiences of persons with disabilities during the COVID-19 crisis, to give advice on disability-specific issues challenges and systemic gaps in programs and benefits, and to offer advice to the Minister on steps that could be taken. The pandemic is a time of public health and economic crisis. For some persons with disabilities, underlying medical conditions put them at greater risk of serious complications related to COVID-19. Many persons with disabilities face discrimination and barriers in accessing information, social services and healthcare. As well as as you well know, I'm sure the need for self-isolation and physical distancing can create additional challenges for persons requiring supports from other people in close proximity. The advisory group met regularly from April through to August via teleconferences that minister qualtro regularly chaired and i must say i was impressed at the her ability to commit time to us in dozens of meetings during a period in which she was handling other major issues such as reforming the employment insurance system rolling out the canada emergency response benefit and a host of other major income and financial supports to Canadians. We also got a chance to meet the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, and the Minister of Health. Each attended one of our advisory group meetings. Some members of our group also had the privilege to meet with the Minister of Indigenous Services to talk about the often forgotten issues of Indigenous peoples with disabilities in this country. We established working groups through the summer that focused on five key priorities. One was finances and employment. A second one was the issue of public communications and accessibility. Third was support for populations at highest risk. The fourth was intergovernmental or federal provincial and territorial collaboration and coordination, including healthcare. That's why we got a chance to meet with Minister Patty Haiju, Federal Minister of Health. And the fifth, fifth priority was to look at support for civil society organizations and not-for-profit that were clearly struggling during the COVID. Not only was there increased demand for their services, but the, the fundraising that they typically could do during the year was greatly diminished because of COVID. So they were hit with two major challenges, meeting increased demands while having decreased fundraising abilities and donations coming in for many, not all, but for many smaller organizations. Let me just uh, give you an idea of a few of the disability-related measures that have been announced by the Government of Canada. I'm not saying we can claim credit for all of these, but we were pleased to see these announcements being made through the summer and into the early fall. One was an investment of $350 million through the Emergency Community Support Fund to help charities and nonprofits supporting vulnerable populations, including persons with disabilities, to be able to adjust their services to respond to the demands generated by COVID-19. A lot of organizations had to think differently about how to deliver services uh, at a time of a pandemic. This had implications for staffing, uh, staff-client ratios, uh, physical distancing, scheduling of meetings, etc. So the federal government, early on in the spring, realized that they needed to provide some quick support. And that money is being flowed out through the Red Cross, United Way, and other organizations to help get that money out quickly. Another announcement was financial support through the Social Development Partnership Program. Um, my friend Vangelis, who's on the call here, he might he knows this program from his days at Employment and Social Development Canada. This is money to support partnerships uh, in the private sector to help develop resources in the areas of accessible workplaces and accessible service design and communication. Another one was an additional $15 million through the Opportunities Fund for Persons with Disabilities to help enhance workplace accessibility. As we know, more people began working from home and remotely and not allowed to go to their traditional workplaces. So we had to help quickly to figure out how to make sure that that was inclusive for Canadians with disabilities and that working at home wasn't just a way of being further marginalized from the workplace or colleagues. And there was also a, a modest investment through the Accessible Technology Program uh, to help fund new projects. If you want more details, just yesterday, uh, the Government of Canada sent out a press release by Minister Qualtro where a full report, both in English and in French and in accessible formats, uh, detailing the work of the Disability Advisory Group over the last six or seven months, and some of the... Advice we gave and some of the much more additional actions taken by the federal government. Based on the disability rights movement slogan, nothing about us without us, which was then integrated in the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the Disability Advisory Group represented, I believe, a sincere effort to implement the principle, nothing without us. Minister Qualtro has shortened the phrase, nothing about us without us, to simply saying, nothing without us. That's full inclusion and full engagement from her perspective. This means including the perspective of persons with disabilities in all initiatives, regardless if the initiative is targeted to people with disabilities or not. Mainstreaming, in other words, the voices of Canadians with disabilities in all actions and policy processes. Putting this principle into practice means thinking about disability inclusion before stakeholder engagement begins to ensure that engagement is both accessible and includes diverse persons with disabilities. Engagement should incur at all stages, before, during, and after policy being made, including implementation, monitoring of policy, and having a voice in the evaluation and feedback on policies. For example, you might recall when the Accessible Canada Act was passed last year, there was significant engagement by and for and with persons with disabilities in the lead up to and the development and now the implementation of that act in partnership with disability stakeholders. In September of this year, A speech from the throne opened a new session of the Canadian Parliament. And in that throne speech, the federal government acknowledged that COVID-19, and I'm quoting you, has disproportionately affected Canadians with disabilities and highlighted long-standing challenges. The throne speech went on to say that the government will bring forward what it called a disability inclusion plan which will have three elements. A new Canadian disability benefit or an income support program modeled after the guaranteed income supplement for seniors in Canada. Second element was a promise for a more robust or stronger employment strategy for Canadians with disabilities. And the third element is a better process at the federal level to determine eligibility for a wide range of federal government disability related programs and benefits. I must say that was a pleasant surprise to hear that announcement in the throne speech. And after it was announced, we had a phone call with Minister Qualtrough a few hours later and she was delighted by that announcement as we were. And that now is providing a focus Last week, we had our first meeting of a renewed Minister's Disability Advisory Group. The original COVID-19 Task Force, in effect, has done much work, but the Minister now wants to turn our attention looking to the recovery phase beyond COVID-19 and to look at how to implement this new Disability Inclusion Action Plan. So in building back better in Canada after the COVID-19 pandemic toward a more inclusive and accessible world, AEBC and other disability groups in Canada have a tremendous opportunity to work together and to advance the agenda on equality. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. I will remain and uh, continue to watch and listen for uh, other speakers. So back to you, uh, Christine. Thank
5: you. You've
2: been listening to AMI-audio's live coverage of the AEBC event, One Voice, More Choices. Don't leave us behind. You've been hearing from Professor Michael J. Prince, and we're going to take a quick break here in our coverage. When we return, you'll hear from a familiar voice in the disability community. Louise Gillis is the president of the CCB, and she will deliver their keynote address. As we like to say in this business, don't touch that dial. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to AMI Audio's live coverage of the AEBC conference, One Voice, More Choices, Don't Leave Us Behind. In the next leg of this conference, you'll be hearing from a familiar voice. Louise Gillis is the president of the Canadian Council for the Blind and a well-known figure in the disability community. Let's go now straight to the Zoom room where Louise
7: is about to begin her remarks. In my, in my and established the rules for what was to be an ongoing relationship between nations. Thank you to Ian White and the AEBC for inviting me to speak here today at your International Day of Persons with Disabilities Conference. Building back better towards a disability-inclusive, accessible, and sustainable Post-COVID world. By telling our stories, we enable our rights. While we are, we focus on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and on people living with disabilities. For us here today, living with blindness, and on the immediate response to the crisis through, through open, inclusive, and innovative use of digital solutions, tools, resources get involved. We must ensure that the aspirations and rights of persons with blindness and other disabilities are included and accounted for in an inclusive, accessible, and sustainable post-COVID-19 world. This vision will only be achieved by government, agencies, and general population through active consultation with persons with disabilities and representative organizations. One of the activities that the Canadian Council of the Blind, CCB, has undertaken during this trying time is to be connected with not only our own members, but with people who have sight loss from across Canada through our Get Together with Technology program. We have increased the number of times and types of calls to reach the broader audience which seems to be working quite well. This forum not only helps people with technology but the participants become mentors to others regarding better ways to live in this new life we are all currently going through. Supporting one another is of utmost importance. CCB chapters across Canada have done a variety of methods of keeping in touch with their community. A few few close friends in some areas develop their own bubbles so that they can go out together in small groups. Many chapters use regular phone calls. Others use the CCB tagline or the Zoom meetings to keep in touch with their chapters' activities. This has proven to be a very useful tool, especially when members have a small or no family close by, and it may be the only extra communication that uh, many people have. Many of our sports and activities have been put on hold for now. Some sports that involve low numbers or and no contact have been able to restart with tight safety rules. We need to find new ways of supporting our members and our community. We have presentations on several webinars through Zoom meetings with organizations such such as International Federation on Aging, the IFA, and Fighting Blindness Canada, um, FBC, regarding the the efforts of COVID-19 on Canadians living with sight loss. How are the governments and social structures supporting the rights of people with disabilities and what steps can be taken to protect their rights? Mr. Prince has talked about this question already, but I will comment a bit as well. The Government of Canada is taking immediate, significant and decisive action to support Canadians and businesses facing hardships because of the COVID-19 outbreak. They have provided a one-time tax-free, non-reportable payment of $600 to help Canadians with disabilities who are recipients of the following programs or benefits. Holders of a valid disability tax credit certificate. Beneficiaries of the July 1st, 2020, uh, Canada Pension Plan Disability, Quebec Pension Plan Disability Pension, disability support provided by Veterans Affairs Canada. As we well know this has taken a long time to come to us and some will have not received theirs their share as yet. If you are eligible but never applied for the disability tax credit or your certificate expires in 2019, expired I should say in 2019, you must apply again uh, by December 31st of 2020. While we are people living with a disability, realize that this was a long overdue and certainly has not met the needs of many people with disabilities. We as persons with disabilities realize that our expenses have become much more during this time for various reasons. But this is a start with our continual reminders to government over the past few months. There is a plan for disability benefits program in the works, yet we do not know all the details. A new investment of 15 million in 2020, 2021, will provide community organizations with resources to improve workplace accessibility and access to jobs in response to COVID-19, included by helping employers set up accessibility, accessible and effective work from home arrangements. This support will also cover expanding accessible online training opportunities and helping connect Canada and Canadians with disabilities working from home with employers. One thing that we need to note that not all provinces in Canada, indeed most Canadian provinces, do not have an accessible uh, equipment um, uh, program so that we can get savings from the through the government for that, that many of us do have to pay full price for all the uh, magnifiers and uh, Zoom and, and all the different uh, assess- accessibility tools that we use. The government is investing 1.18 million in five new projects across the country through the Accessible Technology Program. With this funding, Organizations will develop dynamic and affordable technology, such as accessible payment terminals for retailers and the tools to to make communications easier for Canadians with disabilities in the digital economy. DCB was one of the organizations that worked with the accessible payment terminals to uh, get this underway and get started to hopefully make them accessible across the country. We as people with disabilities need to provide solutions rather than demand to encourage government to help those in need, have a sustainable life above the poverty line. How do we, as people with disabilities, respond to these challenges in time of crisis? Well, we as people living with one or more disabilities during these challenging times need to... provide solutions to government on how best to deal with these challenges. We are the ones living with it and therefore have firsthand knowledge what can make life better for us by providing solutions. It is a positive, in a positive, proactive, and non-confrontational manner. We can be better heard. During these challenging times, it brings ch- changes in resource routines for families as well as for government. It is natural to feel scared and anxious. That is a normal reaction to the state of crisis and uncertainty. Working together to plan of action with structure will give you a sense of strength to advise government as they work and ensure all Canadians can live a safe and valued life well into the future. The United Nations tells us to achieve the highest attainable standards of health or persons with disabilities, the following actions should be considered. And these go for uh, life before COVID and life after COVID. And they are strengthen national legislation and policies on healthcare in line with CRPD. Identify and eliminate obstacles and barriers to accessibility in healthcare facilities. Improve healthcare coverage and affordable for persons with disabilities as part of universal approaches to health care. Train healthcare personnel on disability inclusion and improve services delivered for persons with disabilities. Empower people with disabilities to take control over their own health care decisions based on informed consent. Prohibit discrimination practices in health insurance and promote health insurance coverage for assistive products and rehabilitation services. Improve research and data to monitor, evaluate and strengthen health systems to include and deliver for persons with disabilities. We need to insist on being involved in government decisions about us. This is most important now and post COVID. How do we attract the voice of youth and get them more involved with disability communities in order to track to attract youth we need to first find someone who is connected to youth and is willing to take a a leadership role to move forward we need to find out from youth their needs and desires young are not usually interested in hanging out with old folks so it is essential to get them involved on their terms they generally have sighted friends from school that they can hang out with but it is through a group like like with like disabilities that they grow as they see the success of the people running the group tapping into youth culture and providing ways to participate that are most meaningful for young people the feel ownership of the cause is essential a young creator Series that includes writing, braille, art, videos, and other creative content by and for young people to make the movement their own. First and foremost, the young workers do not want you to to guess or to make assumptions. They want to be asked what they want, what they want, and what they need. They also resist being lumped together as a homogeneous group or a stereotype. Therefore, it is necessary to work at avoiding those traps while still recognizing that there are unavoidable demographic influences that play a role in general attitudes and preferences. Young people, especially those living with sight loss, are looking to their future, where to get the education they need to get the career that they want. This can be a challenge for many young people, although lots of your younger people are highly motivated to work in nonprofits and come into this work because they care about a particular subsector or group of people. Finding that first stable, paying position can be extremely different, difficult. This method can be a stepping stone by encouraging them to. Be part of an organization such as we represent here today, so that they will gain self-confidence as they go out in search of a better-paying job. Maybe once in their first job, they can then move into something stronger and more in what they had always hoped to be, and by having gained confidence in the in their first job, it is everywhere. Social media is the channel that young people, adults, and, uh, sorry, social media is the challenge that young and adults flock to, and there is evidence to prove it. So this may be the ticket to attract our youth. Again, thank you, and I wish you the best with your conference today. Thank you. Back to you, Manette.
3: Thank you, Louise Gillis. We now have some time for a couple of questions. So over to Cindy.
8: Hello, there are, it's Cindy here. I'm sorry for the pause. There are no questions from the chat box right now. Thank you.
0: I have a question for Louise. It is Christine. How effectively, Louise, have healthcare workers dealt with people who are blind or visually impaired during the pandemic? What have they done well? And where is there room for improvement?
7: Well, Thank you. This is a, a great question, Manette or Christine. Sorry, that's okay. Uh, during these unprecedented times of COVID, everyone has experienced a wide range of, of uh, emotions as they deal with changes, and that goes for healthcare workers as well, because they're faced with so many challenges. Uh, it is very difficult for them to even think about how they're going to treat a, a blind or a vision impaired person any different than they treat uh, a person who is uh, not disabled. So it's it's really panic on them. They do work hard in, in many ways of improving that uh, experience so that when you go to a hospital or a, a, an exam room to get some treatments, especially for ones with eye care, injections and that, they have worked very well in that to make sure that the the process is safe for people to, to move from uh, the car to the clinic where they need to be. Uh, sometimes it's a long walk from, from, through the hospital in territory that's unfamiliar to people who have sight loss because everything is changed with arrows and whatnot, so that is difficult to, to follow through with. But uh, calling ahead and somebody meeting them, a person with very low vision or or no vision, at the door has been one of the good ways of of maneuvering through that uh, part of the the hospital to get to where they need to be. Uh, The sad part sometimes that comes into being with people who have disabilities is they end up getting triaged probably quite often to the bottom of the list. Of all the people who may be in emergency or or in uh, already in hospital with with COVID, for instance, um, this has you know it has been felt by many people that this can happen, and I'm not exactly sure how often it has because I don't have any statistics to support it. But somebody who does not have disabilities and enters the the hospital area at the same time as somebody who has a disability may very well get the treatment before the person with disability because they may think that that person has got enough facing them now, so let's work with the person who is more healthy to begin with, give them the care. So there's uh, kind of a double-edged sword there to look at.
9: Thank you very much for that.
7: Thank you. We have
3: time
9: uh, I'm, I'm Alan Conway. I raised yes. my hand.
3: Yes, go ahead, Alan.
9: Okay. Um, I read something. I read something yesterday that I really found um, quite disturbing, and uh, it has to do with uh, a situation where, for example, the ABC has had to deal with things like inaccessible websites to um, apply for federal funding. Uh, it would seem uh, that the um, uh, this matter uh, now has had to go before the courts and that the federal government is now fighting the AEBC on this matter. And to me, this kind of makes uh, some of these uh, comments ring just a little hollow. And I... I think the comment is really more directed to Dr. Prince. Perhaps this is a point that needs to be raised with this advisory group that the government should stop trying to fight with us and spend a little more time working uh, with us because we're all in this together and we really want what is best for all of us. So if we're going to contribute, we have to have equal access to the means to do it.
0: Michael, is this some hi it's christine michael is this something that you can respond to uh
6: i thanks christine and, and thanks for the question uh I, I'm, I'm i can't comment on the specifics of the the issue or if there's something before the courts i'm not aware of that in particular but uh it does raise the question of of uh, uh you know the, the the role of this advisory group and uh and moving forward uh we, we we did have a, a working group look at accessibility and communications and technologies, particularly within the federal public service itself and government websites. Uh, as people on this conference will appreciate, that's an ongoing <laughs> piece of work uh, and many challenges. I, I would just suggest it, whenever any of these concerns come up, do not hesitate to contact the minister directly, Minister Qualtro or her staff, Uh, or reach out to members of the advisory group like myself and we we will be meeting at least once a month starting uh uh, i think if not before christmas shortly in the new year in january so uh this is an opportunity to bring these forward and uh i would think that the minister would be very aware and very interested in hearing these concerns so uh, do not hesitate to reach out to me or Uh, I can also say Krista Carr, who is the Executive Vice President of the Inclusion Canada, which recently changed its name. It had been the Canadian Association for Community Living, which represents individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities across the country. Uh, Krista Carr is the Executive Vice President or CEO of Inclusion Canada. She is the co-chair of the Disability Advisory Group, along with Minister Qualtro. So uh, reaching out either to the minister or her staff, her chief of staff, or to uh, Krista Carr, uh, or to myself, if you'd like, um, and and just to to, uh, get this information to their attention. So thank you.
3: Thank you. Minette, it's
8: Cindy here from the chat line. Do we have time for a question that has come up?
3: Yes, we have time for one more question. We have five minutes.
8: Okay. Um, I have from Deborah Gold. uh, And she writes, balance for blind adults has expanded our mental health supports for our clients throughout COVID, as the demand has been very high. I would like to know if the Disability Advisory Committee, and I think this question is for you, Michael Prince, is looking at the severe lack of mental health supports for people with disabilities and people who are poor in general. It is a terrible system throughout the country and I'd like to know if the committee is looking at making mental health supports and specifically counseling more available, either for free or covered by health insurance. Thank you. Uh,
6: Thank you for the question, Deborah. Um, This this, um, illustrates two or three things. Absolutely, that COVID-19 has greatly intensified anxiety, depression and stress uh, on a lot of people. Um, and, and for people who had uh, challenging circumstances pre-COVID, this is only served to magnify it. Um, we just did a survey here in BC, um, uh, uh, but, but the provincial government did. And uh, certainly, and the Statistics Canada did a crowd uh, survey this summer, and Canadians with disabilities did point out, um, Canadians in general pointed out, I should say. That their levels of anxiety and depression had, had increased as a result of COVID. Um, so the, and we know COVID is going to be around for a lot, a lot longer through this winter and through next year. So uh, this is a concern. Uh, we did have a meeting with Minister Haiju, uh, Minister of Health. Um, a lot of what has been raised in the question is uh, provincial jurisdiction. It's not to say that the federal government does not have a role. It certainly does. And additional fundings on mental health, both for Indigenous peoples and for the Canadian population in general, there's been some additional investments by the Government of Canada, I believe, over the last few months have been announced. Um, more is undoubtedly needed, in my opinion. Um, but this points out to another challenge, which is very Canadian, which is that a lot of the essential services are provincially funded and delivered and administered um, and so the, the, the lobbying and advocacy has to take place across every province, as well as at the national level with the federal government. Um, and you know, watch how the debate plays out over the coming months around future of long-term care facilities in Canada. Uh, one of the greatest tragedies of this COVID pandemic have been the disproportionate number of deaths in nursing homes and uh, care seniors facilities and long-term care. And I think that's one area where the government of Canada wants to invest and engage much more uh, fully. That's going to provoke a, a reaction and a response by provincial governments to tell them to butt out and to just give us the money and don't ask us to do anything in terms of standards. So that's going to be, a, unfortunately, a classic federal-provincial uh, a struggle over that. On mental health, I, I would hope that there will be some more positive cooperation between both levels of government. But no doubt, uh, through the work of the Canadian Mental Health Commission nationally, but also provincially, whether it's CAMH in Toronto or other organizations, uh, uh, mental health is getting additional funding, but more needs to be done. So thank you for the question. Thank, thank you, Michael. Dr. Prince.
3: Thank you, Dr. Prince. We'll have more time for Q&A in the next section. We have to move on to our next item, which is our guest speaker, Ramya Amutin. Hello, you just heard from
2: Louise Gillis from the CCB who talked about the importance of engaging youth, the value of social media and being a part of youth culture and ensuring that today's young people become tomorrow's leaders this is a great place for us to take a break but as you heard Ramya Muthan will be along in just a few minutes to provide a youth perspective on COVID-19 you're listening to AMI audio live at the AEBC conference one voice more choice don't leave us behind we'll be back in just a moment My audio live at the AEBC conference, one voice, more choice, don't leave us behind. My name is Javitha Gupta. Let's take you back to the conference where Kelly and Company co-host Ramia Amuthan is providing a youth perspective on COVID-19. Here's Ramya Amuthan.
5: Encouraging people to step out of comfort zones and try something new. Kind of an interesting timing for that, right? The motto is we choose dare. I think it's good. We created this group near the end of 2019. That was Marku and Serena Robillard. And we were absolutely hyped. We spent weeks discussing and creating the perfect logo for adventures. Just enough catchiness and just enough uh, symbolism. You know, we wanted amazing modeling here. And then we ordered this huge banner to prop up at the Toronto Visionaries White Cane Week Expo. Because it was our first expo and we were excited. We launched a website. We planned the events and the fitness classes we were so excited to bring to the community. We were absolutely ecstatic about moving, bringing movement out. And the first adventure of 2020 was set. 50 people had signed up to go downhill skiing. No, no, sorry. Not downhill skiing. Snow tubing. Downhill snow tubing. And snowshoeing at Ski Snow Valley Resort. 50 people. Almost as many people as there are on this call. It was our biggest event, and we were so hyped. We spent over two months hashing this thing out. Coordinating carpooling, gathering volunteers, answering questions, coordinating accommodations with the resort. It's a lot of work that goes into an event like this. Until, of course, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Pause everything because COVID-19 was coming around. The final week leading up to our snow day, people started questioning whether we should be continuing with our plans. And guess what my answer is? Yes, of course we're continuing. We're not backing out until the the resort backs out. But it's too early to tell, so we're just going to keep going because we don't know how bad it's going to be. Because again, COVID-19 didn't feel real yet. But then Toronto started talk of phase one and establishments being closed including recreation facilities and that included us and our plans okay so now I'm thinking oh no we may have to cancel the event we may have to wait till the summer maybe plan some horseback riding I don't know and that's where I was when this thing really really hit us and I mean where it hit us past the point of Could we still do the things we're doing? No, it really hit and we had to stop in our tracks. And you and I may have been at different points doing different things at this time, but we were really on the same boat. The everyday things like checking the news every minute, trying to digest that this is really actually happening to our world. How close is it to us? Figuring out if somebody else knew more than we did. Who wasn't doing that? And honestly, it's the boat that we're still on. However, and I'll get to this, a lot has changed since that first moment of realization of COVID-19. At the beginning, we were obviously scrambling, you know, our lives, our plans, our vacations, our major projects and minor projects, our date nights, our jobs and career choices. What are we going to do now? What was I planning on doing? Our weddings and birthdays, Our shopping sprees, our workouts, everything, everything was being thrown in this box and it was being nailed shut so quickly and we just couldn't hold on to anything we knew anymore. So what did we do? We started coping. Some of us found, bought and ate every single snack on our bucket list that we ever had, whether we had to ship it for $50 or not. (laughs) And we did it in family sized packages because that's the way we cope. Some of us, well, I'd say most of us, started scrolling down all the possible entertainment that was backlisted on our devices. Everything we had and signed up for everything we didn't have. We'd obviously been shaken and we were trying, again, the things that we knew to keep it together, even though we really couldn't do the things we knew anymore. Taking relationships as another example, what used to be text conversations... At least for me, a lot of text conversations and WhatsApp conversations full of emojis and LOLs and uh, small sentences really slowly started to become actual voice notes, actual conversations over the phone, calling people back before we could check caller ID and decide when or whether to call someone back at all, let alone pick up the phone. And now what I started realizing was I miss people. When was the last time I heard from this person? When was the last time I checked in with my college friends? We were lonely. We were feeling it. That distance, we were seriously feeling it. We, have been, we may have been busy 23 hours a day before this. Last year, some of us, like I said for myself, were keeping so occupied, so busy. People were telling me, you're the busiest person I know. And I, I was the busiest person I knew as well. But now we had all this time. So much time and honestly, not much to do with all this time because everything we knew was out the window. We couldn't spend this time with our people anymore or at our workplaces or schools. We couldn't even go to the grocery store. For a lot of us, that wasn't a a normal casual option anymore. Let me just walk over to the grocery store. And then all this time became screen time. So along came Zoom meetings. Zoom socials, Zoom webinars, Zoom workouts and Zoom parties. Okay, awesome. Something to fill all this time with, right? Yes. But it's a keep it's a way to keep in touch, keep occupied, but how about my eyes? My eyes get exhausted from all this screen time. Everything from work to play to socializing and my ears. Have you felt this? My ears get so exhausted from only being able to listen on speakers and on earphones. Can't really hear real sounds anymore. My fingers are sore from typing, everything professional and recreational. And of course, our brains are exhausted from all the learning and the changes. And so we were given suggestions, right? That's why we go outside, take a walk, wave at neighbor's. Get some fresh air. Fresh air really helps you get out and about. Um Sure. But what are the social distancing protocols on the street and in the grocery stores? How do I even line up at the grocery stores? I can't see the arrows marking things on the floors. And honestly, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to touch things. I can't touch doorknobs and railings, buttons and walls that other people are potentially touching. We shouldn't be touching. I don't want to feel for empty seats on public transit if I want to take public transit at all or have to take public transit at all. I don't want to use public washrooms, so how can I plan my day out? And by the way, just as a a side note, who is going to offer me an arm at a time like this for sighted guide? Do I want to take somebody's arm? Can I do it without it? Not to mention, I'm not used to wearing a mask for so long during the day, right? So there's so many changes, and we were getting flustered. The world we knew had become a touchless world almost overnight. And that set the tone for the blind and low vision reality of the year 2020 and the COVID-19 pandemic. The yin and the yang. We don't have to commute. Everything's gone virtual. Well, that's great. It cuts out inaccessibility, you know, as we know it. Inaccessibility on transit, inaccessibility getting somewhere, inaccessibility at the location and the destination or the event So in comes technological solutions. But with that comes technological concerns. We work much harder to spot things like rapport and intimacy on technological meetups. We all feel it. A hug or a handshake says so much in person. But how can I say the same thing over FaceTime or Zoom or WhatsApp, especially during first impressions, which is a lot of How we had to interview this year and how we had to meet people and say goodbye to loved ones. We had to do it over technology. It's not the same. And how about how exhausting it is to be on screens all day? Sure, there's all these Zoom opportunities, but how many hours can we really, really take advantage? It affects our energy levels. So we implement breaks, more breaks and longer breaks into our meetings and into all day webinars. And you know what? The more people we keep in touch with, the more things we're being involved in, like activities, the more projects we take on, the more screens we're using. So it's taking up a lot of our time. School and learning, back to the yin and the yang, school and learning became the same way for everybody, done over screens, regardless of what your preference is and regardless of your experience in the past and regardless of how good you are at it. Not all of us are great at learning over screens. And so we were starting to think of life as either one way or the other. You were working from home on the telephone or the computer, you were working on front line, or you weren't working at all. That's what our world became. You were either privileged or you were underprivileged. You lived with someone and we're dealing with the change in relationships and family dynamic and who gets the dining table as workspace. I do called it or You were living alone and dealing with that, the mental health, as a lot of uh, you spoke about earlier in the webinar, and on and on and on, all these changes. And though we were all on the same boat, quote unquote, we were facing such different realities, weren't we? And we still are. And now we're here, almost at the end of this very vivid year, as I like to call it. We'll remember this year for a long time to come. How are we feeling now? I've had conversations with so many people, all kinds of people. On Kelly and Company, we talked to a variety of guests and people we know. And we were using words like pivot and creative and trying our best. Because, as I take it, we're tired of feeling stuck. We're tired of being left behind, especially in the disability community. And not being moving forward. The waiting around kind of attitude that we may have had before 2020... It just won't cut it anymore. We have to take the steps. We want more than just the black and white and the either or. And from what I've experienced this year and what I'm seeing in our community and the conversations that we're having and beyond the conversations that we're having, we will make what we need happen. We said, yes, the connections are difficult over technology, but we can do our best. In fact, let's create a variety of spaces over Zoom so you can find what works for you. Small groups for intimate conversations, formal presentations for people who are most engaged when they are listening intently. Let's share audio and video and screens so that we have some interactivity going on. And let's describe our home setups and ourselves. Let's show some personality because we're seeing people's homes and offices. We thought... We're doing a lot of sitting while on screens all day. But you know what? We can actually move together too. I was really disappointed that we couldn't do anything with our Adventure CCB group. But let's create virtual walking groups and yoga classes and dance parties. We remembered we're all feeling the loneliness and exhaustion. The mental health challenges of trying so hard this year and everything feeling so potent. And in some way, we can all relate to this. So why not get in touch and deal with it together? We can collaborate on art projects and hold music gems and virtual pub nights and book clubs, um, even some sightseeing. You know, they're, they're great ways to collaborate together. And underneath all the collaboration is conversation. We can document the year and what it meant for different people. We can showcase the realities that we're facing and not only bring our own challenges to light, but bring the challenges and realities of our neighbors into the light. We decided, and I know I decided, if I'm spending so much time with me anyways, I might as well work on myself. I'll try everything that's being offered. I'll try meditation. I'll get in touch with my mental health. I'll show appreciation and count blessings. And not only for myself, but let me share what I can with those around me and those in my community You see, back in March, after the initial shock had landed on COVID-19, I think it's fair to say that most of us started to get with the program. Initially, I was all for embracing my introvert side and listening to audiobooks on my own, trying out new recipes, taking long walks by myself, and actually appreciating a quieter Toronto. And friends of mine were doing their best to keep in touch with their extrovert side holding zoom birthday parties and having regular virtual dinners and game nights. I participated in a few of those too. Keeping text conversations going, Netflix partying, anything that was being offered, we were trying to grab onto it just so we can hold a little bit of ourselves. But we were still in shock and the first few months we were really just winging it because we had no idea how to do this. But after a few months into our new lives and with the help of the sunshine during the summer, what we were really doing was building new systems for ourselves and our communities something that we can really utilize and at the end of the day, even commend to mark what this year has given us. Eventually the weather started getting cold. The days were darker and colder and smaller, shorter. And I started feeling claustrophobic at home without the daily walks. And you were probably feeling the same about things that you had picked up to say, okay, I can do this. But you know, as the year changes, sometimes you feel like you can't do it. But when the second wave of COVID-19 hit and it felt like we were back at square one again, um, you know, whereas in the summer I was tempted to check COVID numbers and get caught up in the news at 7. AM now I'm waking up wondering what the daily high is for Ontario. We had the option of meeting in bubbles during the summer and now we're back to being home. Well, most of us had the privilege of having bubbles But now we're back to being home, working from home, back on our screens all day. The holidays are around the corner. It's not going to be the same. Halloween wasn't the same. Thanksgiving dinner was different. And if you're feeling like we're shutting down again, you know, there's that difference now that wasn't there at Square One in February, March, April when we were winging it. We have resources and we have systems that we're quickly and insistently build for ourselves. And we're continuing to build for ourselves. We're having conversations on how we can make these things better for us. And we're sharing those resources gener- gener- generously with each other. If you're working, good employers are hopefully asking you how you're feeling and how you're doing. It's not just about the productivity, but they're checking in about your mental health and how that's affecting your productivity. When we're feeling sluggish, there are virtual, accessible resources and groups running everything from yoga to Friday night dance parties so that we can step back from all this craziness. Organizations are doing their best to give us the festivals and the annual events and fundraisers and gatherings that we're used to from past years and we look forward to because they know we miss it. They miss it. And with how creative events are actually being this year, to be honest, I'm curious. I'm curious about how people are doing things and I'm excited for them. When loneliness creeps in, we have phone lines and text lines and at least 50 different Zoom groups a week. It may not be ideal, but it's something. And there are no location limitations to join. That's a huge plus. We have people in our corners, even if not physically. We're building and spreading empathy and compassion. This year has been teaching us to really take time out for that and to listen to each other and learn about each other and at the end of the day, care about each other. There used to be such thick, opaque curtains between us within our community and outside of it. But now we're working on kind of eliminating all that. We've come really far, I'd say. And it's been a very brutally honest and extremely real direction that we're heading in. So... We could just keep doing our best, really. We'll keep building and reforming. And hopefully, this is my hopeful hindsight, is that next year around this time, we'll reflect on where we are now, where we were, and say, look how far we've come since 2020. Um, I thank you very much for this opportunity and to, to have me speak this afternoon, and I look forward to the rest of this conference.
3: Thank you very much, Ramia. You have really hit home with what you have said, and many of us can identify with, you know, what, what you have said. But it's time for some questions. Over to Cindy.
8: Hello, Cindy here again. Um, I would like to read one quick comment and then there was a question as well. Um, the comment was just to follow up on the mental health uh, question that was raised earlier and Keith would like people to know that on the that the CCB conducted a survey of members in April that showed significant mental stress fear and loneliness in the community and that there's a full report available on the national website and then Deborah, thank you um, has posted the link to that study in the chat line so anyone who would like to look at that please have a look. And then I would just like to read out the question uh, that came in a little bit earlier from Lauren. And she writes, and she does not address this to anyone in particular. So uh, Christine, maybe you can uh, direct it or any one of the speakers could answer to it. It says sensory disabilities, both sight and hearing, are often overlooked with respect to accessible COVID-19 information and updates. What is the plan to develop a protocol to ensure accessible and timely information moving forward. Thank you.
0: Not, It's Christine. Not to always go to Michael, um, but I'm thinking Michael may be able to respond to
6: that question. Um, thanks, Christine, and, and thanks for the question. Um, this is where I, I, I feel like I wish I had some of the other members of the disability advisor group sitting with me right now. Um, uh, we there was some work done through the summer uh, working with uh, Treasury board Secretariat of the government of Canada and with um, other federal organizations on accessibility and communications um, uh, this is an issue that's uh, of personal concern of course to Minister Qualtro as well Um the report that came out yesterday talking about some of our work w- would describe uh, more specifics around some of the advice we were giving to, to the minister and to the government and to the public service of Canada. Um, beyond that, on, on the mental health side, I'm not sure, Christine, if you wanted me to comment on that as well. But um, yes, this please. is clearly an area that's, um, uh, you know, the challenge is is um, how to reach out to people in a, in a more of a virtual world today than eight months ago, where uh, there would have been more face-to-face contact with people through counseling um, or therapy. Um, We're just seeing that through the mainstream healthcare system as well. Um, Virtual outreach works for some people, certainly does not work for all people. And virtual outreach creates new barriers. We know that with any new technology, they're mixed blessings. So uh, I think our guest speaker just Ram, you just spoke about that, too, that um, uh, some of these technologies uh, open some doors but also present barriers to other people at the same time. We have to think about the unintended consequences of some of these. Um, we're still learning. There, there are Documents put out by the Public Health Agency of Canada uh, try to address some of this, uh, as does Health Canada. And that was one thing that was helpful in the spring was our advisory group and Minister of Working with Minister Haiju and her officials in Health Canada in making sure that materials with respect to COVID um, and and things um, things like just communications, the kind of messaging around social isolation or social distancing, what it what it really meant and what the impacts were having on on many people. So th- this is a complex, tough issue. Um, but, uh, we need to continue to talk about it. And, uh, again, if people have solutions, please send them forward, um, and, uh, we'll look at them. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Dr. Prince. Go ahead, Heather.
10: Hi, um, uh, my name's Heather Walkus, and I live out in British Columbia. We just received a report on November 3rd from the BC seniors advocate, um, Isabel McKenzie, and it was called Staying Apart to Stay Safe: The Impact of Visit Restrictions on Long-Term Care and Assisted Living Survey. This was a survey of 13,000 people um, done in one month between August and September, I believe. And it ha- posed some very interesting um, questions and looked at what are we doing when we lock down our care facilities? And as we know, many people in care facilities have disabilities. One of the outcomes of some of the statistics that I think we need to look at, and I'm talking about BC, um, during this time of the pandemic, 151 residents died from uh, COVID-19 at the date of this this writing. And as a result, um, she also looked at how many died of other causes, which was 4,600 people. So we locked down our seniors. 4,600 people were not able to die with their families or friends around them. They died uh, locked from that. Now let's take a look at that statistic and think about the isolation of all seniors or people in these care homes because not all are seniors and many of them are young but because there's no other services end up in assisted living or extended care so many of our people are not when I say our people I'm talking about our people with disabilities are not getting one the services they need or access to supports that they need to just manage within those homes during this lockdown. And so I think we also have to look at the bigger picture, not just who has passed, but who has passed outside of of COVID and who is there who are not getting services that are from the disability community, especially the sensory um, disability. So I just wanted to put that into the mix for us to think about as we all are trying to find uh, solutions or at least pathways towards solutions to look at what we have done and maybe lockdown wasn't the only option and we need to seriously look at listening to families and the residents about what their needs are and what risks they're willing to take in order to be together the majority of people in bc who are in care have their own rooms and so, and most of any allowed visitation <clears throat> Was only thirty minutes in, um, overseen by a employee. So we really have seen um, that isolation. Uh, it's almost like we were so busy trying to to protect people, we forgot that by overprotecting, we've now denied them a quality of life. So thank you, and thank you everyone who's spoken. I've appreciated it very much.
3: Thank you, Heather. And we don't want to put Dr. Prince on the spot all the time. Louise, do you want to respond to that?
7: Louise here, yes. Um, yes, we realize that there are so many in the, uh, in the places like long-term care homes and uh, uh, special assistant homes that are not being cared for the way that we have hoped to be. Uh, when we did the CCB, did the survey back in April, We did not have access to many people in the long-term care because they didn't have the technology at that time to respond. So we did not get direct answers from them. But there there are many people out there who are suffering in that way and and dying alone. So it's uh, not an easy life during COVID, but also very many other times when uh, people are left by themselves in long term and in in private homes that don't have somebody to go in and visit them or connect with them because they can uh, or don't have family close by that are in their bubble, so to speak so it's it's not a not a good scene for, for folks like that, but it's up to the rest of us I guess to try and see if we can move forward to make a plan to improve that quality of life for everybody. And uh, by working together in, in groups rather than in silos, is going to help improve those uh, people who are having those harder or more difficult times to get through this particular time. So let's uh, try and function in a more um, togetherness way of, of dealing with life during COVID and how we can improve it for the time after COVID as well.
3: Thank you, Elise. We've been for almost an hour and a half, so we'll take a 10-minute break, and we'll, we'll start back at 2.40. So a minutes. Go ahead.
9: Hi, yeah, George.
3: Hello,
2: and you're listening to Joita. Hello, you're listening to AMI Audio's live coverage of the AEBC conference um, that is taking place right now. They're about to take a break, so are we. You heard from some excellent speakers over the first half of the conference: Michael J. Prince, Louis Gillis, and of course, Ramiya Muthen. On the other side of the break, and they'll take about 10 minutes to uh, get themselves set up, there's a wonderful panel that I hope you'll tune back in for. The panel is going to bring together several voices and prominent figures from the disability community. Uh, Samantha Moore, John Ray and several others that you might have heard of before the panelists will talk about how governments and other social uh, civil societies uh, organizations can better support people with disabilities and what needs to change. I hope you'll stay with us for that conversation. You're listening to AMI Audio Live. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to AMI-audio's live coverage of an AEBC event. This conference, which is now at the half-made mark, is known as One Voice, More Choice, Don't Leave Us Behind. The conference is an opportunity for people with disabilities to gather across Canada, virtually of course, and discuss, debate, and contemplate not only some of the challenges, but also some of the opportunities facing the community. This has been a truly unusual year and personally I'm very glad that we are doing our part to celebrate and recognize IDPD or the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. The theme for this year's International Day of Persons with Disabilities is building back better towards a disability inclusive, accessible and sustainable post-COVID-19 world. In a few minutes, we're going back to the conference where you'll be hearing from a panel of experts and advocates in the disability community. Each of them has some thoughts and some ideas about how government can step up and do more for people with disabilities and what needs to change and how we, all of us as people with disabilities, can get involved. But first, if you're joining the coverage a little bit later on in the day... Welcome, and we thought it would be a good idea to give you a sense of why the conference is taking place and who it is that's making it all happen. My colleague Dave Brown, host of Now with Dave Brown, which airs weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, had a chance to sit down with Minette Samaru, the president of AEBC's Toronto chapter. Dave had a conversation with Minette about why the conference is important and who they'd be hearing from. Here is Dave Brown in conversation with Minette Samaru.
11: What are some of the what are some of the, the, the things that you're seeing talking to some of the members of the ABC? What what are some of the concerns they're voicing and that and that we're going to be highlighting on Saturday?
3: Some of the concerns is you know, the, the lack of services from the, the government, the lack of the responses from the government that we have been experiencing. Um for example, you know when COVID hit and you know it is set to the, to that two thousand dollars is at least someone can survive on. But yet, persons with disabilities and social services have been receiving less than that, and nothing has been said about that. Yeah, it's such. So, yeah, thank you.
11: It, it's, such, it's such a significant conversation about, about the way in which we think about sustainable and, and survivable incomes and, and seeing that disparity, I know, upset a, a lot of people. Um, this is going to be a virtual event, as I mentioned in the intro, which is something many organizations have been using during COVID-19. So far in the planning process for this event on Saturday, have you found there to be any advantages in hosting an event virtually?
3: Yes, there's a significant advantage in that we're going across Canada this year. The past four years that we've been having this event, no one out, outside of Toronto's ABC has had the opportunity to participate in the event. But this year, all chapters of ABC will have the opportunity. And not only ABC members, but Canadians from all across the country can participate from all across the country. So and, that is a major advantage.
11: And, and we'll talk about one of those special guest speakers uh, in a moment, but I'm just curious, what is that for an organization knowing that although it's a challenging time, there's actually a way to amplify your voice and your message even further? What kind of an opportunity is that for an organization like the AEBC?
3: Uh, it is major because it, it brings visibility to what's ABC is doing, and not just what ABC is doing, but what persons with disabilities are doing, and it, it amplifies our voice.
11: So let's talk about a couple of these very special guest speakers who are going to be uh, who are going to be talking uh, with with everybody uh, virtually. Now, the, this very special keynote uh, speaker is someone that AMI listeners are familiar with. Who can we expect to get, to get as the a keynote speaker?
3: Key speakers, actually. Um, one is Louis Gillis, who is the president, national president of Canadian Council for the Blind, and she will be one of the keynote speakers. And I chose Louis Gillis because she's someone after my own heart in that what I'm doing at the Toronto chapter level is working with other organizations serving persons with disabilities to work together because we we have a common interest and Louise Gillies is doing that as well so she's very key to bringing that message that we need to work together for a common cause.
1: Mm.
3: We also have Michael J Prince who is a professor at the University of Victoria and he's also a member of the COVID-19 Disability Advisory Committee. So his his presentation is key. It's is significant. There's a lot to be learned from him. So I would encourage everyone to sign up and listen to what Michael J. Michael Prince has to say.
11: Yeah, Michael's an excellent follow on social media as well. Always having interesting conversations in those spots. And again, always fantastic to hear that Louise Gillis is being included. Uh, definitely a, f- a friend of the network here as well. Another friend of the AMI audio network is someone who's literally on the AMI audio network. And that's our very own Ramia Amuthan, who will be speaking at the event. What's Ramia going to be discussing at the event on Saturday?
3: Yes, we're, we're really excited to have Ramia because she's going to be speaking on the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic on youth in society. So. She's going to be speaking uh, on behalf of the youth, and, you know, she has some really, really great points. I I looked at her her speaking points, and, again, I won't give anything away. Just sign up to help Brahmiya. (laughs)
11: Yeah, no, no spoiler alerts, no spoiler alerts on no. what Ramia is going to be talking about, but it's always going to be interesting. Uh, Ramia of course, will be joining us a little bit later in the show to be previewing this afternoon's Kelly and Company. Now, there's another young advocate who you're going to be included in the event. It's Samantha Moore, the co-chair of the 2019 National Young Leaders Program at Fighting Blind. Two young folks who are going to be speaking at this event. Why was it so important for the AEBC to include uh, the concerns and voices of young people in the conference?
3: From our experience, youth have not always been advocates, and, you know, we've heard how the pandemic affects seniors, we heard how the pandemic affects persons with disabilities, but there's not much about how the pandemic affects youth, and so we we want to give them this platform to have their voice be heard. We want to know how they are affected. And we also want them to take a leadership role in advocating for themselves.
11: As I look on the agenda for Saturday's event, I, I find it remarkable you're going to get all this stuff in. But there's also going to be a panel session. So what can we expect from the panel session?
3: So the panel session is going to be focusing on what organizations, disability organizations are doing to keep their members engaged. And we want to hear from them and we want to know how other disability organizations can learn from what they're doing and be able to keep their members engaged as well because it's, you know, before the pandemic, persons with disabilities face isolation and this pandemic has, has only increased that isolation and, you know, it causes mental illness and, and others, you know, social, um, you know, effects. So we need to hear from others what they're doing so that we can all learn from each other. That was
2: Dave Brown, host of Now with Dave Brown, in conversation with Toronto's AEPC Chapter President, Minette Samaru, giving us a bit of a, a sneak preview, because this conversation took place a couple of days ago, about what to expect from this online conference. We are at the halfway point. We've had our conversation with Michael J. Prince, who talked to us about the ways in which the government is stepping up, especially Minister Carl de quarter taking some leadership to ensure that people with disabilities are not left out of any kind of decision-making during the pandemic. Of course, even Minister quarter acknowledges that the government could be doing more. We heard from Louise Gillis, as uh, was mentioned in that taped conversation, about the need to involve youth and ensure that they become part of the conversation and of course, you heard just a few minutes ago Ramya Amuthan talking about making sure we become, we remain generous and committed to the idea of holding space virtually for one another and ensuring <laughs> that her perspective as a young person, as youth, is taken into consideration as we plan activities and events and move forward. What we'll be doing for the remainder of the afternoon is listening in on the panel that was discussed in, our con- in the conversation you just heard between Dave Brown and Minette Samaru. The panel is a really good opportunity to hear from advocates and experts who represent various sectors and various populations within the disability communities. Our challenges are unique. The barriers are many. But it is imperative that we speak with one voice. And so without further ado, let's take you back to the Zoom room where the panel is about to take place.
0: He has been an audiologist for more than 30 years and has worked at Canadian Hearing Services since 2001, where he is the Director of Hearing, Health, Quality and Knowledge Enterprise. He completed his Doctor of Audiology degree from AT, still University of Health Sciences, where he is now an adjunct assistant professor. He received his M.A. in Audiology from the University of Tennessee and his B.A. in Communication Disorders from the University of Mississippi. Rex has held multiple professional and advocacy roles, including being a former president of the Canadian Academy of Audiology, former president of the Ontario Association of Speech-Language Pathologists and Audiologists, and former president of the Acoustic Neuroma Association of Canada. He received the Professional Leadership Award from AT Still University and was the inaugural recipient of OSLA's Audiologist of the Year Award. Rex's audiology experience spans private practice, ENT physician offices, hospitals, universities, and the nonprofit sector. As well, he is trained in tinnitus retraining therapy, also known as TRT. Rex is often called upon by the media to comment on a range of hearing healthcare issues that affect Canadians. Welcome Rex, thanks. Samantha Moore is a co-chair of 2019 National Young Leaders Program Fighting Blindness Canada Coordinator public relations, and youth programs, Canadian Council of the Blind. Sam has had a fashion and events background and is passionate about the arts. While working and volunteering full-time with Fighting Blindness Canada, she also worked part-time for a performance theatre in Brampton. From 2011 to 2020, she was a strong advocate for accessibility in the Peel region pushing to have audio traffic signals installed in her neighborhood, and engaging in similar initiatives with Brampton's Accessibility Advisory Committee. Her interest in events, bringing people and communities together, is an enormous asset for the Fighting Blindness Canada Young Leaders Program. During the pandemic, Samantha made the decision to move to Ottawa, and is now the Canadian Council of the Blind's National Coordinator of Public Relations and Youth Programs and recently interviewed with AMI Audio. Welcome Samantha. Next we have Hi, Alicia
7: everybody.
0: Next we have Alicia Grace Chenier, who is a public speaker and advocate for people with disabilities. Alicia as a public speaker, sharing her life on social media, being a brain tumor survivor, a chronic illness warrior, and living with vision loss, Alicia is currently in her third year at Cambridge College in Sudbury, studying early childhood education, and in future wants to pursue disability studies so she can become an advocate for those with disabilities. Alicia is a CNIB National Youth Council member. Welcome, Alicia. And last but not least, we have John Ray, the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians, a human rights advocate for people with disabilities, a public speaker and writer. John Ray brings a rather unusual combination of government, labour and community experiences to all of his endeavours. John is a national past president of the ABC and currently is a member of the boards of the Council of Canadians with Disabilities and the Injured Workers Community Legal Clinic. He writes and speaks on a broad range of disability and broader human rights topics. In June, 2016, John was awarded the Cruikshank Medal from the Ontario Historical Society in recognition for his work in promoting greater access and inclusion museum and art galleries welcome panelists to kick it off i'd like each of you to share a little bit about yourself and rex if you'd like to start uh
1: certainly Uh, sorry not to worry uh uh, yes so as i said i'm an audiologist and i'm just really happy to be here today uh been uh, involved in many different aspects of uh, advocacy over the years, and uh, really seen firsthand over the last uh, eight or nine months now with COVID-19 how this has impacted people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And I'm really happy that we have this opportunity to come together today uh, for this special event and and um, and to share whatever I can contribute to today's discussion.
0: Great, thank you so much, Rex. And next, Samantha, if you can tell us a little bit about yourself.
12: Hi, everybody. Um, So as Christine had mentioned earlier, I work with the Canadian Council of the Blind uh, doing public relations and youth programs. I'm really trying to get some youth engagement going, and um, I really love interacting with the sort of 20-something and teens group. Uh, I really love getting youth involved in a lot of advocacy stuff like this. I think it's really important that... We get younger people more involved. I know sometimes um, it can be hard to communicate kind of between different generations because we have different ideas of what's a priority uh, for accessibility. So I really want to try and close that gap between different generations, Um, especially at CCB. I want to try and bring everyone together. Um, Yeah, it's a little bit about me. Great.
0: Thank you so much. And over to Alicia.
13: Hi, everyone. I'm Alicia, and I'm visually impaired. So I do a lot of advocacy um, within the visual, um, the vision loss community. And, um, you know, especially with the pandemic happening, there has been, you know, the world is not really accessible, um, but now adding a whole pandemic over it has added even more barriers. So I've been, you know, doing a lot of awareness around that. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Alicia. And John, you can tell us a bit about yourself.
14: Thank you. Although I may be considered uh, or best known as a disability rights advocate, I really see myself more as a human rights advocate because I tend to take an intersectional approach in all of the work that I do. And and I believe that uh, many groups Need more attention. Unfortunately, we in the disabled community almost all off, too often get left out. And my my view on that is that uh, we aren't at enough tables where important decisions about us get made. So that's a little bit more about me.
0: Well, thank you so much.
14: For the past 45 years, and I have to say that after all that time, advocacy is still very, very firmly in my blood.
0: Thanks. Thank you so much, John. So to kick it off, um, Rex, I would like to ask this question. What are some best practices that are working well, and what are community organizations doing? to keep their members engaged during the pandemic?
1: Uh, Thank you, and thank you for that question. Uh, At Canadian Hearing Services, when the pandemic happened, we literally needed to very quickly switch almost all of our services that were conversational based or learning based over to virtual. So uh, we were able to pivot pretty quickly at Canadian Hearing Services and dive into the world of virtual care. And even with hearing aids today, Um, although the assessment piece of it, we still need the person in front of us, we are uh, able to uh, reach right into your living room through the uh, power of technology and adjust your hearing aids uh, even remotely. Uh, So getting our staff trained on various uh, remote platforms and ensuring that we understood the technology was the first piece in ensuring that we were remaining engaged with our communities. Uh, We have also provided many different types of educational presentations to the community and to other organizations in our sector uh, to uh, educate them about hearing loss and and what people uh, who are deaf and hard of hearing may be experiencing during the pandemic. Uh, We have engaged our communities by participating in research. There are several different uh, COVID surveys being circulated now that are – Try to look into the question about how is COVID affecting hearing or maybe if it's even causing tinnitus. Uh, I have written lots of different blogs over the last few months and uh, had a lot of different media interviews. One uh, topic that has really uh, come to the forefront uh, is uh, communication while we're all wearing masks. So people who have untreated hearing loss uh, have decided to maybe seek out help over the last uh, several months because they have to address their hearing loss now because it's exasperated uh, while trying to communicate behind masks. And for people that already have hearing aids, you know, they've uh, been losing them uh, because when they take their mask off, the strings pull it off. Uh, So trying to educate others about how to communicate behind a mask and uh, for people that are hard of hearing or deaf, as well as their communication partners, has really been a focus. And we have been encouraging people to just stay connected and the strategies around combating isolation and loneliness. We know that hearing is very integral to uh, keeping connected to people around us and ensuring that our communities understand technology and how to stay connected and to communicate through all of this.
0: Thank you so much. And over to you, Alicia. What do you... What are some best practices that are working well and what are community organizations doing to keep their members engaged during the pandemic?
13: So um, for me during the pandemic, um, it had to, it canceled a lot of in-person services. Um, The organizations that I have used a lot are, you know, my, my college and then CNIB, which uh, Canadian National Institute of the Blind, and then also the Brain Tumor um, Foundation of Canada, Um, I used to, like, as someone with visual impairment, I used to take the bus wherever I would go. Um, so like, you know, making, you know, navigating the world as someone with vision loss was really hard and still is. But now, um, every, like CNIB especially has, like, everything has become fully online and virtual, making it so much easier for me to be engaged and connect, especially during the pandemic, which is so important, um you know, social distancing really should be physical distancing because that social aspect is so important. And you can do that through, um, like the internet and through zoom, like we're doing now. Um, yeah. So it's, you know, instead of like connecting with just people from my city now, I can connect with so many people with vision loss or just like similar experiences to me through my computer and across Canada.
0: Thank you so much. And over to you, Samantha. What are some best practices that are working well and what are community organizations doing to keep their members engaged during the pandemic?
12: Uh, so the CCB, Canadian Council of the Blind, um, has continued to host virtual get-together with technology meetings. Um, that's been something we've been doing for a while. We were on Zoom Um long before the pandemic, so it was great that we were able to continue that. Um, But yeah, continuing to host those meetings for people in the blind and low-vision community. Um, This has been especially important to those who have suddenly needed to learn how to use Zoom with their adaptive technology. So uh, even though we did have people in the community that were familiar with how Zoom worked and they were joining on calls, um, that was more for social stuff or for technology support, So if there were people who maybe suddenly needed to now know how to host a Zoom call uh, for work because now they were working from home and their environment had changed, they now needed to learn how to use that software um, or to use those programs with their assistive software like Zoom Text or VoiceOver um, or JAWS or whatever it is that they were using. So really continuing to, I guess, elaborate on the support that was already there and and making sure that everyone had access to it. Um, Also, the CCB conducted a study, I believe, which was mentioned earlier in the chat, um, earlier on in the conference. The link, I believe, was posted to it. Uh, It was a study conducted back in April uh, just to kind of communicate to the government, um, you know, how people in the community were doing, um, some of the fears and stress that we had around COVID-19, or about just accessing healthcare or continuing with our sort of day-to-day life. Uh, personally, I have really loved social media. I think I've probably connected with so many people in the blind and low vision community this year, um, like Alicia. And, you know, those smaller uh, motivational speakers or advocates or um, people in the community who are speaking out on social media, kind of connecting with them through other people without having to have met them in person so I think this year I've, I've made a lot of online connections that um, I'm really happy with and I hope people never underestimate you know the power of an online friendship I know it sounds kind of corny but uh, it's definitely really powerful and really awesome for helping people to to stay in touch and, and feel like there's some kind of You're
2: listening to AMI-audio's live coverage of the AEBC Conference, One Voice, More Choice. Don't leave us behind. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll come back and drop in on the panel just in a few minutes. Stay with us. Back to AMI Audio's live coverage of an AEBC conference. One voice, more choice. Don't leave us behind. We're in the middle of a panel, and now let's just throw to it right away. You'll be hearing from Samantha Moore.
13: Because it's just, if I already knew it wouldn't um, like be accessible, or you know, not accessible to a degree. Um, and I have found this sheer, it's like starting first year all over again in like a new online virtual platform um, really has taken a toll on me and my accommodations. There have been a lot of pluses. Like Sam said, it's kind of split. Um, so there's been like a lot of positive things. Like I don't have to travel back and forth to my college, which saves me quite a bit of time. But at the same time, I don't have, you know, my scribe anymore I for tests. I don't have my note taker. I have an app for it now, which you know, it's it's been good and pluses, but at the same time, it's been very um, different and especially like the eye strain that because, you know, it's more it's very more independent now. And there's a heavy reading um, and that lack of social like there's a, a very lack of, um, I guess, connection within the college because, you know, we go to Zoom class, we listen to our lectures, but there's not really that time to connect with other students. Um, which I have found hard. Um, so, you know, it like I'm agreeing with what Sam said before, like it's a, like really um, like half and half here. It's, you know, pluses and minuses. <laughs> okay.
0: Similar to Ramya, she said it's the yin and the yang, right? We're living in this yeah. virtual world. Now, John, how do we as people with disabilities respond to these challenges in a time of crisis? Well,
14: for ABC, we were no strangers to using Zoom. Prior to the pandemic, as a national organization, our board and our national committees already used it. Uh, However, since the pandemic started, uh, like many other organizations, we have held chats with members to try and reduce isolation and keep individuals connected and part way through it was suggested we should open these up to non-members as well which we've done and it has resulted in a few people actually joining the ABC and I would encourage those of you on this call today who aren't ABC members to consider joining so um, we've had to do things differently. We held our national conference in AGM virtually and <laughs> that posed unique challenges but like many organizations we made it work. The right so of we, we lost out in the, the personal contact that happens in coming together but we made it work and you know The work of an organization has continued, and as several speakers have said, one of the benefits, of course, is that we, we save the time that we used to spend traveling to and from our meetings. So, you know, while I personally prefer in-person gatherings, I, I always will. I don't think there's any substitute for in-person meetings. We can make, and we are making this new reality
0: work for us and samantha what would you say how do we how do we respond to these challenges in a time of crisis
12: i would say try your best to have patience and continue to educate people uh, but don't afraid to be more assertive sometimes we are taught that, you know, it, it's our job and our sort of responsibility to educate everybody. And if it doesn't work out, it's our fault. I would say, you know, stand up for yourself, be tough, kind of say what you need over and over again. And if people just aren't getting it, make them get it. <laughs> um, it, it really standing up for yours. It's hard because it, you, you know, you don't want to be labeled as the, the angry disabled person I think we've all maybe dealt with with that label at some point in our life um but in these kind of you know survival of the fittest type situations you you're all very strong like we can do that we can be tough and we can say hey I'm here too like I have I deserve as much of this just as everybody else does
14: Christine, I I think, though, we have to be stronger in our advocacy work because, to a large extent, we have been ignored. Uh, You know, think of the, the $600 that was eventually provided to persons with disabilities, at least those of us who had the disability tax credit. That was only about two-thirds of our community, and while other people got the CERB fairly quickly, $2,000 a month, and it continued, you know, we were offered crumbs. I call them crumbs. Obviously, $600 will help, and it has helped, but it's it's not equitable. Uh, Alan Conway talked about the federal government fighting the ABC in court over the inaccessibility of their application processes to their website. And yet, 10 years ago, Donna Jodhan succeeded in court. A decision that required federal websites to become accessible, there's a long way to go yet. Um, And and there are lots of other examples, but the, the, uh, the items that Michael Prince mentioned in the Speech of the Throne are at least a bit more encouraging because they talk about both income and employment. You know, over the 45 years I've been doing this work, our rate of employment has increased only only marginally. And I think there's still a lot of employers that really don't want any part of us. They'd be happier if we stopped darkening their doors. Of course, we're not going to do that, but... uh I think there is a need to focus at least as much on income as it is on employment because the employment rate and the employment route has been been difficult. A lot of governments have responded to reports on poverty saying, just go get a job, but they've done virtually nothing to make that route easier. So there are reasons why we sometimes get pushy because we aren't represented adequately at tables where important decisions are made. And too often, instead of inviting reps from consumer groups like ABC or CCB or the Canadian Federation of the Blind or others, they rely upon the service providers. They keep inviting CNIB to these tables. And what I know for sure, as a long-time blind person, I have never been asked by CNIB, nor have I ever given them the right to speak on my behalf. It's our organizations that should be at those tables representing us, we who have lived experience of living with blindness and low vision.
1: Thank you, John. Christine, Rex? Yes, uh, Rex. If I could get in here on a second. Uh, yeah, I, think I was right just now, bringing you in. Oh, wonderful. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a great time right now, though, actually, while people with typical hearing are experiencing communication problems, for them to understand what deaf and hard of hearing people may be experiencing as well. So uh, I think people are very receptive to the message right now about what is the best way to communicate with each other. And that's what everyone needs to know, especially with social distancing and while everyone is wearing a mask, uh, we have to, people with hearing loss have to advocate and let everyone else know the best way to communicate with them. They also need to make sure that all their technology is working right now. So always, you know, making sure that your hearing aids are secured, that they're charged. Uh, because that you know how to connect to Bluetooth or wireless type of uh, devices, uh, because that is more important than ever when we are all uh, so far apart from each other. Um, I think, and finally, just to be patient and to realize that everyone is going through this. Um, Everyone is experiencing communication stress, uh, and that we all need to kind of help each other through it and to give each other a little bit of a break and realize that everyone is stressed and we know that when we are feeling more and more stress, uh, it's more difficult for us to communicate.
0: That leads me to my next question as John was reflecting on what the governments are doing. Um, How are the governments and social structures supporting the right of people with disabilities and what steps can be taken to protect their rights?
1: And Rex, if you could share your perspectives. Sure. Well, so right away when all of this started and everyone was having to wear masks, right away we understood for people who are deaf or hard of hearing uh, that mask presented a significant communication barrier because all of a sudden they couldn't see each other's face and their mouths. And uh, so much information um, is relayed through speech reading and uh, through the face in terms of communication and tone. Uh, The government, though, right away pretty much published a a paper or a document on the Internet uh, called COVID-19 and People with Disabilities in Canada. And what the government uh, said out of the gate was that if you were COVID negative, that it was okay to use a face shield uh, with a deaf or hard of hearing person uh, instead of mandating a mask. Now, saying that, you know, the the research and, and such on the efficacy of face shields, still needed more further development, but it did kind of open that window right away that maybe a face shield in certain types of situations would be appropriate. So I was kind of glad to see the government uh, came out with that. Uh, In Ontario, the assistive devices program started authorizing virtual uh, hearing aid evaluations. So instead of just right, you know, having to be uh, present and in person. Um, you know, virtual assessments became more available and, um, and authorized. And then I think also the government did a pretty good job with the various uh, colleges, particularly my college, the College of Audiologists and Speech-Language Pathologists of Ontario, in terms of providing guidance to regulated health professionals in terms of how to incorporate virtual care into our practices and ensuring there was a lot of PPE training and the government also um, you know, began tracking PPE, and we've been reporting on how much PPE we have uh, twice a week since March. And the government has also uh, provided support uh, to organizations that have had difficulty getting PPE or maintaining a good supply of it to make sure that we have it in order to serve the people who need to come to us.
0: And over to you, Alicia. Alicia. How do you see the government and social structures supporting the rights of people with disabilities?
13: Um, so for me, my biggest thing would probably be um the like the medical aspect of everything, the healthcare system, um, and a little bit of the government too, but I've really like had to be more like assertive and more um, you know raise a little bit more advocacy than I normally would wait now because I do have a like a support person whether it be my mom or someone else to help me come to these meetings there's forms I can't see or read or just to help with like all my medical um stuff um and really like because of you know COVID I found that there's a lack of I don't know how to like there's just been like People put disabilities on the sidelines before, but I feel like with the pandemic, they've put them to the sidelines more and like, they're leaving us, um, they should be putting us in the forefront rather than just, you know, forgetting about us kind of thing. And, um, I had an incident where I went to a government office and had to sign some papers and I, um, my mom had to come with me because, you know, she's my support and she helps me read all the inaccessible papers that I would be eventually signing. Um, so when I, she had dropped me off at the door because I do like, I use a white cane. I have enough vision to see around me and get into the building safely. Um, but when she had come in after she had parked, they had refused her to come in and, you know, basically said, no, she's fine on her own because they had made that assumption that I had enough vision to be able to do that. And, you know, when they, like, I knew what I was going to be signing. I, It was for like my health card renewal, but they're like, oh, do you need help? And I proceeded to ask them, can I have my support person with me? And they still refused. And it was like taking that away from me really shone uh, a light on really like what happens. And I feel like there should be more rights and like they should be protecting more rights of people with disabilities, especially during this time. It's, you know... I feel like especially with pandemic, you can still, you know, accommodate. <laughs> so
0: thank you for sharing that. I mean that that shines a light on accessible customer service and accessible opportunities when you're you're trying to shop online or you know purchase things online. John, I'd like to hear your comments about that.
14: A tough lesson. And it's a tough lesson. Many, Christine, of the advances that we have achieved were not handed to us. We live in a country that prides itself on its human rights record, and it talks a good line. But the there, there is a big gap between what is talked about and proposed, Compared to what actually happens, and one of the examples at the end of the last election, the the government promised us that they they would institute a disability lens, a process whereby any new policy program or piece of legislation would be examined for its disability impact. As far as I know, that hasn't happened. Um. um so. When we hear about the the new ideas proposed in the economic statement, they are encouraged, but we will have to be sure to be involved. And as I said earlier, we don't get the kind of opportunities that I think we rightfully should, because as rights holders, we are the people that uh, those people get jobs to serve and yet we don't get the opportunity to direct how new programs are developed, implemented, and delivered, and that's that's the big disconnect. You know, there aren't enough of us in media outlets where decisions about what stories are going to get covered and and what slant will be put on them. We aren't in offices where decisions about new technology are made and when they will become fully accessible. And I don't think there's many of us in in. in uh, in Premier Ford's office, where public policy decisions are being made every day that directly affect us. And one of the biggest ones that uh, we're fighting now is who will get access to vaccines when they become available. And in Ontario, it seemed for a while that we might get excluded And so there's been a coalition of groups come together that has been pressuring the government. It seems like they've changed their mind, but we're going to have to be absolutely on guard. We must keep politicians' feet to the fire to try and make sure that they implement the things they talk about, because a lot of governments are much better at talking than delivering.
0: Thanks. Thank you very much, John. So in re- thinking about Ramya's um, reflections around mental health and social isolation, COVID-19 is certainly shining a spotlight on the barriers that people with disability are facing. Samantha, what are some ways to get out of social isolation Isolation, and how is social isolation? isolation impacting youth and people with disabilities?
12: There are a lot of really great ways to get out of it. Uh, obviously, within moderation, since, you know, right now, we it's not like you can go to, a, you know, your local pub or your local bar and meet new people um, or maybe go to any huge concerts or large events. Uh, but there's definitely some things you can do on a smaller scale, your mental health just to feel like you're being social so um one of the things i really loved a few months ago um during the pandemic fighting blindness canada had hosted a uh, meditation session so they actually had someone come in and go through some different meditation um topics with us the different ways you could meditate uh one of the things i loved um ramya was also doing like a, a yoga series i think physical activity is really important. So whether it's meditating uh, or just yoga or stretching or going for a walk every day, uh, you know, even if it's for five minutes, 10 minutes, just having a a routine where you work in some kind of physical activity or awareness into your schedule, um, I think that makes a very big difference. And there are a lot of resources out there, either from CNIB, um, your local Y like the YMCA, they have some really great resources. Um, Doctor's appointments are still virtual. You can talk to your doctor about some good mental health resources, um, schools, uh, you know, your university or college, especially for youth. Don't be afraid to kind of turn to those supports for that. Um, A lot of them have gone virtual. So even if, you know, don't just say, oh, because it's virtual, I'm not going to look into it. It's not the same as being around
4: real
12: people um, or, you know, people in person, rather. Uh, at least try and do something because making the effort for your mental health and trying to reach out to those resources does a lot for you. Does that kind of answer the question? or
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Alicia, what would be your perspectives on getting out of social isolation
13: um so for me um I'm so I'm a little it's a little complicated for me because like I am I'm kind of in isolation because my immune system is very like I have to kind of stay home but I've found that connecting through the college through CNIB like just even though it's virtual um there's still like you know different events that I can attend rather than just class, um, you know, get involved with, there's still clubs going on at my school. Um, so, you know, start a club, kind of figure your way around that. Um, and just finding other activities to really stay connected and reach out to people, reach out to new people through social media. Like I've met a lot of people, um, like Sam was saying, like I've met Sam through social media this year and, you know, staying connected and having those, um, similar like i guess like similar needs and um you know going through similar challenges through the pandemic is you know comforting and you know making new friends um yeah just don't don't disconnect is what my biggest thing is stay connected and don't disconnect
0: well thank you so much for that I'd like to bring our our host of the Pulse, uh, Joeta Gupta, to come to come in. And um, this is now our our question area for everybody who has spoken. Joeta, your your comments or your questions.
2: I Well, thank you very much for having me join the conference. It's been a really wonderful panel, and I feel like I've been on the edge of my seat. I've heard a lot about how governments and nonprofits and other organizations can and have and should uh, step up and do more for the disability community, and I don't disagree with that. But one of the things that I have found exciting about the pandemic, and I haven't really found very much exciting about the pandemic. But one of the things I have found exciting um, would be some of the mutual aid programs that have cropped up in places like Toronto or Halifax. In Toronto, we have a very active Facebook group called Caremongering TO. I'm curious, and any of the panelists or previous speakers are welcome to jump in on this, but I'm curious about whether you think there's some scope for us within the disability community to organize ourselves so that we can all get the things that we need right for mutual
3: aid. Now, did
0: everybody hear that? Because I know Joeta had cut out a bit. And who'd like to take that question?
12: I didn't uh, catch the last bit, but if you repeat it, I'd be happy to try and tackle it.
2: Uh, the... Trouble the 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 difficulties with technology, right? I mean, I think this the phrase of the year is you're on mute or you're cutting out. Uh, What I was asking in (laughs) what I was asking for in very brief terms is whether any of you feel that there's some value in mutual aid models. So we as people with disabilities have so many skills and abilities and talents that we can bring to the table. Are there things that we can do in the here and now in the middle of this pandemic? to support one another and support the people who don't have as many resources. Is there room for mutual aid in our community?
12: Oh, of course, I think so. Um, and I think a lot of that is just flexibility, right? Like if you're on a Zoom call and, you know, maybe the connection is bad or, um, you know, someone keeps cutting out, try a FaceTime call or try a phone call or, you um, You know, maybe stop and try again a few minutes later. Try different. There's so many different ways of connecting or, you know, continue the conversation through email. There's so many different ways that you can do things. We have so many resources that allow us to be flexible. So if something isn't working, um, I really love that everyone has been super understanding this year and tried to make it work no matter what's been going on. Like that kind of worldwide empathy has been great and having working with people within the disability community that know, hey, this platform isn't accessible, let's try this other one. Or uh, being on calls, for example, for the blind community and also having closed captioning and making sure that it's not just available to your specific demographic, but making sure that multiple people can access it and coordinating with each other on that is, can be really powerful.
14: John, I think some of that is already happening. Maybe not in as organized a manner as you're suggesting, Julia, but I, I think that we rely on our friends for help. I, I know a number of people have reached out and have been very helpful to me during my recent com- computer woes, and uh, I don't think I'm alone in, in, in uh in reaching out to my friends. This is something that we've always done, learn from each other. Most of us have developed our own ways of coping with our disability. And what works for one may very well work for someone else. So it's a question of reaching out to your friends and through organizations. That's one of the things, one of the legacies that the, the uh disability rights movement is left I think not only has it been a vehicle for advocacy and for self organization and, and, and that sort of thing but it's also a way of getting individual help we meet people and we see how others are doing something that we want to do or uh, help us get introduced to new ideas I know during the pandemic, I've developed a love for audio described movies. I, I used to go to movies at the theater once in a while, but it was never much, not not never much of a movie goer, but uh, while home, I have I, like many of, of the rest of us, I've developed that new interest and also in old time radio. So I've taken, uh, I guess you could say taking take advantage of the opportunity of the things I used to do like going to live theater and going to concerts and traveling the world, things I can't do these days to, to look for new ways of uh, entertaining myself and I I, I think the, the sharing that has gone on has helped a lot of us. Thanks.
7: Can we
2: Louise. Hello and welcome to or welcome back to our online our coverage of a- AMI audio lives coverage of the AEBC panel and conference one voice more choice don't leave us behind my name is Joey Gupta. I'm anchoring today's um, conference and it's been a really fun afternoon but while they're taking some questions on the panel it's a good opportunity for us to take a little break but we'll come back in just a moment don't go away. Welcome back to AMI-audio's live coverage of the AEBC conference. We are now almost at the end. The title of the conference, One Voice, More Choice, Don't Leave Us Behind. We've been listening to an exciting panel where panelists are now taking questions. So let's go ahead and have a listen to what's going on. It's
14: to me that there are barriers, that there is distrust, that this will take time to develop. I can tell you, within CCD, there is a serious interest in making it happen, but we know that it's not easy. Our the, the demographics of Canada has changed a lot over the last twenty years, and, and those of us who are leaders in organizations need to uh, be not only be aware of it, but to take some concrete and positive steps to encourage other groups to join us because uh, the broader we can develop our movement, the stronger we're going to be. And we need new people, young, old, indigenous, racialized. We need to broaden our movement so that we can become stronger. Thanks. But this takes work.
0: Well if you think about it, this pandemic is global in scope, and is there a way that we can organize ourselves internationally as people with disabilities? Are there any thoughts? I mean, it sounds like we're we're talking about a coalition of sorts. Any well, it's of already s- happening. There are, it is. There it are, is, but the know, voices.
14: There are groups, you know, the World Blind Union, the uh the World Association of the Deaf, there are organizations on the international level who are at the United Nations. <sighs> we, we have a, you know, a rapporteur on disability at the United Nations. And while I, I, I don't really see that the UN Convention has done a lot for Canadians here at home yet... I hope it may yet do so. I think it has made some differences in countries around the world who who did not have the kind of legislative or policy framework that Canada and the United States and Britain already had. Um, so it, it, there, there are international uh, efforts. In fact, this week... There have been a whole number of sessions as states parties at the United Nations have been meeting. There have been a number of sessions on disability in conjunction with December third. So there is work going on at the international level, uh, you know, trying to, you know, standards on on how the the silent killer, the electric car, should operate. Uh, you know, World Blind Union does work on that. Uh, so, our, our 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 next challenge, of course, is the the e-scooter that is uh, becoming the plague on on the on, on the streets of many communities. We need some international standards on those too. So, there is Christine. There is some work going on. At, at the international level and and some benefits have come from that what we need to do in Canada though is to spend more of our time on figuring out how can we use the UN convention to advance a domestic agenda and that's something which groups in Canada are really yet to do I hope that will happen thanks
4: Um, Christine it's Melanie if I could have a half a second absolutely um, so I just want to go back to the piece around uh, relationship building. And as an Indigenous disabled person offering a land acknowledgement, um, I think that's where we need to start. Um, I think it's it's amazing that organizations like CCD, uh, for example, as John just said, have uh, three new positions on their board well, that may be a beginning. Really, the beginning is about building the relationship piece. Um, And even more important than that, it's that the intention needs to be there. So it's not just about having spaces for folks at the table. It's about having an intentional, um, that you want people at the table with varying disabilities and with varying intersections, and have that intention from um top down or up or from the bottom up whichever you want to talk about it right so it's it's um it's it's also an intention around the building relationship piece thank you
10: ramia i really loved your are are you are you accepting people from to speak or do you have a speakers column or where are we at
0: um, we're, I just had one more comment to say, and in three minutes, we're going to be taking questions from the, from everyone. So, Ramya, I really loved your optimism, and I think we all did. And I just, um, want to reflect on an, au- an author, Amanda Leduc, saying that disability is not a flaw, it's actually a superpower. Now, do you agree with that? And let's talk about superpowers that people with disabilities have in responding to the pandemic.
5: Yeah, absolutely, Christine. I mean, uh, that's a really great comment, and it's a really great word that I've actually heard um, this year. A lot of, you know, superpowers. Let's use our superpowers. Let's share our superpowers because... You know, we're talking about relationship building and relatability and empathy and all these different ways that we can connect with each other and learn from each other. Um, and the only way to do that is really to be authentic to ourselves, right? We're talking about all the different legislations and the change in systems that are going on and um, the the way that we can let people know that this is the way we receive information, or this is the way we send information, or are the most productive in these kind of environments, or earlier on when we were talking about the uh, one-time payment for persons with disabilities, you know, why six hundred dollars means X, you know, is it enough for us, or is it not, and what can we do with that amount when SERB and CRB is much more, um, things like that is really uh, to be authentic to. T- Talk about the the history, but also our current situations and what really does work for us in terms of accessibility and what doesn't. And if we can share that amongst each other and create solid bonds by being this way, I think that it can be um, super helpful and it is being super help- helpful as we're seeing this year. The more we kind of band together and say, as people with disabilities or as a person with low vision, This is what I'm going through. And I really need this kind of accommodation to do the best and to be the best at what I do.
0: Thank you so much for that. And I'd like to open it up to questions from our audience. This is now your time to raise your hand or to type in the chat box questions that you have for any of our speakers or panelists. Now's your opportunity.
8: Christine? Christine? Yeah, it's Cindy on the chat line. We have two questions uh, that have been typed in. And okay. for whoever is monitoring the raising of hands, Brent Manuel um, asked if he could ask a question. I, he may not uh, have raised his hand, but he has indicated he would like to ask a question. So whoever is taking care of that, if they could check. Um, and just, uh, Christine, two points for you to maybe address at the very end of our our broad, our meeting today. Um Some comments have been made of wishing to connect with speakers via social media after today's uh, conference. And then um, some people would like to know how to access or listen to the meeting afterwards if they were not able to be here for all of it. So that may be addressed at some time um, before we end today. That would be great. Um, So Terry Lynn. Um, Is asking, um, there are a lot of initiatives from CCB and CNIB with respect to technology training, uh, computers and cell accessibility. Uh, Thank you to the many volunteers who assist with information, resources and training supports. Are there initiatives surrounding technology repair and financial supports for computer upgrading for those who are in financial need and who find it difficult to pay for such services? especially now that virtual platforms are even more necessary for personal and community participation. When the, commu- when the computer stops functioning, where can the vision loss community access financial supports? I don't know if that can be answered here, but if anyone can type in or speak to that, um, that was the first question I have.
14: Um, Ms. John, if you live in Ontario, you can get assistance to get a computer through ADP but once you get it you are responsible for repairs I'm
0: afraid
8: okay thanks John
0: Michael is that something that you can address
6: see that uh, th- thanks for the question thanks Christine uh, yeah I, I was listening to the question there there are uh, there are some pots of money in in, in federal government agencies and organizations um, and I, I expect that as we see the rollout of the Accessible Canada Act, uh, which only got enacted last July and then was just starting with the standards development process earlier this year, then COVID hit. So work is continuing, but at a slower pace, uh, I, I expect that, uh, there will be additional investments. Um, I would say, look, look to the next federal budget, which may be in February or March. I'm not sure exactly when, but, uh, uh, I would expect additional investments in there. And as we see the rollout of the Act and the discussions around a new Canada disability income benefit as to what, what it's for and what it's not for, it will not cover all costs of living for all Canadians with disabilities. So there's a really important role here for continued investments in technical aids, devices, equipment, personal supports, local community services, both by the federal government but also, or more equ- more importantly, by provincial governments.
0: Thanks. Cindy, you had said that Brent Manuel had a question. There was an individual that had a question.
14: And Heather had one too.
0: And Heather has one as well.
10: There are three people who have a question.
0: Okay. Okay. Heather, if you'd like to ask your question.
10: Yeah, I'm a little disturbed um, when you speak about bringing indigenous racialized people into the fold, as it were. I'm a little concerned about the arrogance of that thinking, because that is really coming from colonialist thinking and how we organize ourselves. When you open the door, it's one thing, but you must remember that people like me, (laughs) walk into these organizations and are met with a lot of misogyny, met with a lot of uh, racism. And I think first, before anyone wants to start talking about outside the race that they are familiar with, because we are all racialized in that respect, you really have to check your own ingredients within yourselves and your own knowledge base. It's one thing to say, yes, we want to have the Rainbow Coalition, but the reality is people who are racialized, people who are Aboriginal, do not necessarily um, ascribe to the systems that a lot of our organizations have set up. Now, I'm the first vice chair of CCD, and I am probably one of the few racialized people that have come on to that um, executive. Second, our, our president, our chair is a racialized person as well. And she is young. She is 26 years old. And she is a dynamite person. Um, And it was part of not just getting, a, not doing token positions at CCD to expand um, who we have room for, but it was actually to make space so people can come in the organization and change not just, come to us and, and somehow be mentored, but that the organization get mentored from the people who have honestly been kept out and of of the whole disability movement and of a society. So a lot of our organizations reflect the ways that, um, and are organized in a very discriminatory way because that's what we learned. So I think we have to do a lot more work around do Certain organizations and people really want to be part of the mainstream because it doesn't make room for them, and it certainly doesn't. Um, as the previous uh, person said, intent and space is important, but also listening. I don't organize myself based on a top-down. I organize myself on building consensus. And so people have to start to get their egos out of the way. They have to start seeing that their privilege. privileged needs to step back and have the people speak for themselves and help rearrange how we do business. So I bring that forward to someone who's worked in this area for a long time. Mm -hmm. And CCD right now is opening the door for people to, Mm -hmm. if they choose to come in, and it won't be the council voting on them, Because we have no right as a council to decide who the indigenous rep should be it is indigenous people that will decide that it will be youth who will decide that it will be racialized people who will decide that and what they come into is a safe space to begin to make the change that's as far as we can go as an organizational structure and they'll have to take it on so really check your ingredients when you start saying i'm really interested in bringing in indigenous people because Indigenous people may not be interested in joining your space. Thank you. Heather, for
0: your comments. Now, is, Sabelle, is it Sybil? Would it's like, Sybil. Sybil. Okay. Go ahead.
15: Um, I uh, thank you, by the way, the last speaker. I just want to uh, appreciate that, because I think that's super important, and that conversation needs to happen uh, more frequently. Um, and uh, I appreciate the courage and her bringing that forward and would like to stay in touch. So thank you very, very much for that. Um, but what I wanted to add was this, the conversation around interim measures for support. So I've been on a few uh, Plan Institute calls around the throne speech um, discussion of the guaranteed income supports for people with disabilities. I'm aware of the one-time $600 payment, which I called the Trump check in Canada um because it's so uh minor compared to the need um i've been looking at this increasing um uh homelessness and precarious housing and how you know wondering what percentage of people currently who are uh, experiencing homelessness or housing precarity actually have disabilities and i've been trying to just ask around and informally a lot of us seem to come to, like, probably, you know, some estimate around at least 75% of people who are either homeless or precariously housed may have uh, pre-existing disabilities, uh, disabilities writ large. So, um, so you know, it's, it's an ableism issue, homelessness. It's an ableism issue, housing precarity. And it's not necessarily being addressed as such. My hope is on Monday to uh, say this. There's, like, a government deposition that I, I want to address this at. But I I also look at these Plan Institute calls and I see this that often there is a lot of privilege at these Plan Institute calls. And it isn't always a nothing about us without us. And it is often uh, service providers who are involved with the government right now during the pandemic. And so I really wonder where the call is for intermeasures now. Look, there's lots of people suffering who are homeless with disabilities or precariously housed who are in abusive um, home situations. Where is the consensus call among the, in the disability community for CERB now, CRB now for people with disabilities, and not with these narrow definitions of disability that are themselves discriminatory, but where it's like, you know, people are fully capable of knowing whether themselves they have disabilities, and every definition that we narrow past the like Human Rights Commission is uh, just leaving people out. So the question is: Is there any push for interim measures, and what could those look like?
3: Thank you, Sybil. We just have time for this this response, and then we'll have to wrap up. If someone could respond to this,
8: I have jo- Joita saying that she would like to respond to Sybil's point about homelessness.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, I hope you don't mind that I just dis- that I do do jump in. I tried not to editorialize too much, but you mentioned off the top that I do work at a housing and homelessness agency. So I feel compelled to say a few things about this. One, um, there is a very significant problem with chronic homelessness and underhousing in the disability community. And I don't think we have a lot of research around that. The other problem is that although formally the number of evictions are down because the landlord and tenant board in Ontario, and I suspect in other parts of the country, they haven't really been processing evictions uh, at the same pace. There's still a huge backlog. So I think the worst is still to come. The third thing that I worry about is that even though we've gone into deeper restrictions and lockdowns across Canada, um, in many provinces, Ontario included, we have not seen a reintroduction of eviction moratoriums. So people are falling behind on rent, they're getting into arrears. And the part that worries me the most, and I would love to hear if, the, if some of the panelists, maybe John, if you have something to say about it or any of the others, one of the things that really worries me is the fact that so many of our eviction hearings are happening online. And we're getting into these inaccessible, uh, for the most part, a very a, a, convoluted Microsoft team meetings where people are getting evicted in absentia, they're getting evicted without realizing that they even had an eviction hearing coming up. How concerned are we as advocates um, for the disability community about A, the precarious nature of housing and homelessness for the disability community, and B, about the fact that access to justice has become something of a joke?
14: I wish I had more time than I have left, Julieta, to respond to your questions. (laughs) I think that – and, Michael, you may want to join on this one – that when uh, the federal government returned to the housing issue through national housing strategy, I I think that was welcomed by most of us. Unfortunately (laughs) – and uh, in, instead of requiring that all new housing that's constructed be fully accessible and constructed using the principles of universal design, the, the figure was set at 20%. Well, when we consider the aging population, which I'm certainly a part in, which most of the rest of you will, soon, will someday join, most of us would prefer to be able to remain where we live, in the communities where we are familiar. And because of the way where we live is currently constructed, that isn't always possible. So uh, certainly in Toronto, ABC and and some other groups have been pushing city council to adopt a 100% uh, standard in terms of new constructions. We, we're not there yet, but we're working hard on that one. And I think more needs to be done at the provincial and federal levels on that very point. Uh, more, more, more and more hearings on various topics, whether it's workers' compensation, whether it is, uh, uh, you know, justice and, and court appearances more and more this is happening virtually and you know that has pros and cons to it i guess um but uh yeah you you have a, a valid issue joey about homelessness and housing friends was one of the main issues that spawned our movement back in the 50s it was because of the lack of in accessible housing—that really got our movement started—and we we talk about uh, uh, the need for more housing. That's that's certainly true. I think the issue of accessibility isn't uh, talked about nearly enough. And and around Toronto, there's a, there's a group that's thinking about the future. And I've attended a couple of their meetings and I've managed to get accessibility built into their housing plan. Cause housing is one of the the pillars of what they, this group is talking about in terms of what should life look like post pandemic, uh, a time that we all look forward to. So uh, Joena's Point about housing, you know, that's one of the things that has created so much stress and and contributed to more mental health issues. Is people's being worried about can they put food on the table? Can they stay in the housing that they're used to, or can they find affordable and accessible housing, especially in a city like Toronto? Where well, rents have gone through the roof. So uh, there needs to be more
2: action. On the You've been listening things. to our coverage of the ABC conference. One voice, more choice. None of us left behind. I hope you don't mind that I stepped in a bit and asked a few questions myself. Uh, one can't help but get involved. Not only have I been uh, and am uh, deeply committed to disability rights and human rights, but I've been uh, working at a housing agency for about a decade now, and I've seen people suffering in their hardship up close um, and how challenging the pandemic has been. So I told myself when this started, don't get involved, don't editorialize, but uh, ended up breaking my own promise. I'd like to thank the AEBC for putting on such a terrific conference and getting some of the thoughts flowing and the conversation going. Lots of people to thank here at AMI as well. The technical producer for today's event has been Matt Agnews, and a solid job our uh, paula Dineen is our technical supervisor janice davidson presick is our um, is the manager for marketing and communications at ami and does a lot of behind the scenes coordination andy frank is the manager of ami audio and i really want to thank you for being a part of this conversation and for being a part of this journey it's going to take all of us as people with disabilities to not stay silent but to make sure that our issues get put on the the agenda, that we have a seat at the table, and that as people with disabilities, we advocate for ourselves and each other to make sure that as the country recovers from COVID-19, we are at the table, we are part of the decision-making process, we are speaking with one voice, trying to ensure that Canada builds back better with a disability lens at its core thanks a lot for being a part of this coverage we really appreciated bringing it to you it's been a bit of an adventure it's the first time i've ever hosted anything in uh, my track pants and a t-shirt from home so uh, thank you very much for bearing with us it's been a lot of fun and if you wanted to catch any of the conference i know some people wanted to know where they could catch it if you, you can always find um, the podcast that we will be putting up very shortly on any of your podcast platforms. You just have to look for AMI Audio Live and you can find today's conference on there. Thanks a lot for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Stay informed. Stay connected. Stay in the loop and keep talking to one another and keep the momentum going after this conference. Thanks a lot for being with us.
0: This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.
5: Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI Audiobook Review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI Audiobook Review from your favorite podcast provider.